Please take your Bible now and turn with me to the book of Matthew. And we have taken an excursion through the 25th chapter of Matthew and we're finishing that up today. We've studied the parables of the ten virgins. The simple message is be prepared for the second coming of Christ. And then we've also studied the parable of the talents, which would indicate in the meantime, between now and the time that Jesus does come back, let us make the most of every opportunity because the days are indeed evil. We need to live in light of the coming of Christ. Martin Luther said there were only two days on his calendar, today and that day. And he was talking about the day when either he met the Lord through death or Jesus came and received him along with so many others that we're going to read about today. Today we're going to look at the last judgment, beginning with verse 31 of Matthew 25. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne, and the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed You are thirsty and give you drink. And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked? or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of these, least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Anthony Ashley Cooper, not to be confused with Alice Cooper, was born in 1801 in England. 
and he died in 1885. On the death of his father, he became known as the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury. He was known as Lord Shaftesbury. At the age of 26, he became a parliamentarian in Great Britain. As a child, he was neglected and abused by both parents. If it were not for the influence of his nanny, her name was Anna Maria Miles, he would never have amounted to much of anything. I'll talk about her if I remember a little bit later in my introduction of him to you today. When he went to Parliament, he was a man on a mission. He was responsible more than any other social reformer for reform in the social arena in Great Britain during his lifetime. Of course, we know about William Wilberforce, who lived in that same general era as being a great reformer, a great Christian, I might add, too. But listen to some of the things which he was able to accomplish over his storied stay in Parliament. He was the one who authored and nursed the bill. It was called the Coal Mines Act. And the focus of this bill was to make it impossible for either women or children to be going into the mines in Great Britain. No more females would have to work there. No more children would have to work in the mines. Later, in 1845, he was the one who authored and pushed through the Lunacy Act, which provided good facilities for those who were suffering from mental illness. Later, he authored the Ten Hours Factory Act, which said that no child or no person would be required to work more than ten hours in factories. Those factories in the Industrial Revolution ran ten hours a day plus seven days a week. He was instrumental in this. He developed what is called the Ragged School Union. Visited himself on behalf of chimney sweeps and flower girls, orphans, prostitutes, prisoners, handicapped people, and crippled children. Tremendous success this man had in his endeavors of reforming the society of Great Britain. What motivated him? His favorite verse of Scripture, yes, Scripture, this man whose nanny taught him about Jesus, and it was she who introduced him to the Lord Jesus Christ. His favorite verse of Scripture was the next to the last verse in your Bible. The words of Jesus, yes, I'm coming soon, amen. And then the cry of those who will be here like us when He comes would say, come quickly, Lord, that was the verse that really altered his course and set him on the constructive pathway that life took him. He was, by his own description, listen carefully, in his private diary, he wrote, I am the evangelical of evangelicals. What did that mean to him? He did not leave us to wonder what that meant to him. In his 
statement in that same part of his diary. These are the words which he wrote. An evangelical is one who believes in the deity of Jesus Christ, who believes in the atoning work of Jesus Christ for the salvation of mankind and in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he said on another occasion. He was said, he said, I have lived one, not one conscious hour in the last 40 years without being influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. He said, there is no real remedy for all this mass of misery, but in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we not plead for it every time we hear the clock tick? How about that? We'd be blessed immensely if we had someone in Congress or the Senate or the presidency or any office who had that motivation. Bring Jesus back. Wouldn't that be cool? be awesome to think about. He said, on my tombstone, I just want... This verse, Revelation 22.20, written. Then when he did die at the age of 84, literally tens of thousands of people, mostly from the lower classes, lined the street from his home where his body was taken to Westminster Abbey. And if you were to go there today, you could find the place where his remains are buried. Do you know what these people who lined the streets of London, many of them wrote on placards which they held as his body was being taken to its place of internment? They held verses from Matthew 25, the passage which we just read. I was and hungered and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Even the pouring rain that day could not dampen the spirits of those whose lives had been radically changed, not by a human being, but God through Christ, through that human being. This man who, to tell you the truth, was sort of an enigma to me. I didn't know much about him at all until I was getting ready to prepare this message today. This passage of Scripture, which we read together today, we're going to study in some detail about the last judgment. The first few verses talk about the coronation of the king. Let's visit again. Verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him. May I stop here before I forget to make this very important observation? The word nations is not the word that we would commonly associate with it in its use today. It's not a piece of property in which a certain group of people lives. It's not about that. It's about different people, groups in the world. It's actually the word ethna. Do you hear the word ethnicity or ethnic that come from that word, ethna? It's people groups. It's all people groups in the world. 
All the people groups of the world will be gathered before Jesus Christ when He comes. His titles we've seen in these opening remarks which He makes in this teaching on the Last Judgment. The Son of Man. The word Son of Man or the phrase Son of Man is a phrase which is used in the Old Testament predicting the coming of the Messiah. And it simply means the King. It was a synonym of sorts for the King. The King is coming. He's coming in His glory. That speaks of His being King and being crowned King on earth as He is in heaven. And look who His escorts are. The angels. How many angels are going to return with Jesus? How many? All the angels. Can you imagine what a spectacle that will be? Awesome to think about. All the angels will come with Him, escorting Him him in. And then the middle part of verse 32, He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. If we were to go to the Middle East today, we would probably, if we looked carefully, find shepherds shepherding not only their sheep, but also their goats. And it surprised me to discover that those two animals would be herded together during the day when the shepherds sought pasture for them. But when the evening came in the time of Jesus, and even to this day, the shepherd takes the sheep and the goats back to the resting place for the evening, and he separates them in the evening, or she separates them in the evening. There's a reason for that. The goats are very irascible. They are agitators. They're instigators. They love to start a fight. Whereas sheep are very docile. They are not argumentative. They are anything but aggressive. And the shepherd who understands this separates them. How often have we read in the New Testament that Jesus would speak of us as His sheep? He speaks of Himself. He says, the good shepherd lays down His life for His sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. He is crowned king when He comes. King on earth. We know He's been king in heaven since He went back to heaven and prior to that for eternity He's been king. But He's coming. His kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. This is the picture of that happening. And we have a part to play, not just in that moment. At that moment, there will be little if no part to play except for us to worship Him as Lord. Because all the work will have been done by then. We have been given this responsibility in the interim period as His sheep to advance the kingdom of God. And we do that, as we saw last week, by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. The power of God is in the gospel by the Holy Spirit. We've seen that. It will be too late for anyone to transition from being a goat to a sheep at that time. It will be too late. We're going to see that in this passage of Scripture. But what we do know is... Those who are told to go to Jesus' right will be the sheep. Those to His left 
the goats. We know in Jewish practice and Middle Eastern practice generally that the right hand or the right side is the side of righteousness and the left hand is the side of unrighteousness. So, the coronation of Jesus is spectacular when we look at here and think about the second coming of Jesus. And lest I forget, let me take note of the fact when we read carefully Jesus' teaching in what is called the Olivet Discourse, which we find here and in chapter 24, but also we find it in the book of Mark, we find it in the book of Luke, And what we know is that it's preceded by what is known as the Great Tribulation. A period of seven years when tyranny will be unleashed on the world. Especially the last half of that seven-year period when the Antichrist will come. And he being, in effect, the embodiment of Satan himself. He will come and he will establish his control. It will be a time that will be a very difficult time, to say the least, for people who know the Lord. And it will culminate in Christ's coming at the end of that seven-year period to establish what is called the millennium. A thousand-year reign of Christ on earth along with the sheep. Those who are alive and those who have died in Christ will reign with Christ on earth do His bidding, it'll be a utopia for sure. But let's move on now as we look at the last judgment, having looked at the king who is, in effect, coronated. We see it in his titles. We see it in his escorts. We see in the audience, the audience, sheep and goats. Recall what Paul writes in Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11 about Jesus. He said, Being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. And as a result of that, God the Father gave Jesus the Son the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. We've already read it. But not only are the sheep addressing Jesus as Lord in this teaching, but also the goats are. They didn't know Jesus as Lord. And by this time, they understood that. They may have understood it previously, but they certainly understood it now in this particular teaching and will understand it. So it's a fulfillment of a sort of prophecy found in Philippians 2. His audience is comprised of both sheep and goats. If we were to go to John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, we would discover that Jesus says there that I'm coming back to be the judge. And when I come back, I'm going to call all the dead up out of the grave. Did you know that even goats, people who did not know Jesus Christ, are coming out of the grave when Jesus comes back? For many years, I was under the misunderstanding just people who know Christ are coming out of the grave. But not so. Everybody's coming up for this judgment. Powerful to think about. Sobering 
should be an incentive for us to want to know for sure that we have eternal life, but then also to behave in a manner that is in keeping with a person who has eternal life. But look at the commendation that Jesus gives. It's rather lengthy to the sheep. Verse 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Quite a commendation. He calls them blessed of my Father. And the word blessed, this is the word which is used by Jesus in the Beatitudes, where He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and those who mourn, and the gentle, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. This word blessed carries with it the idea of congratulations to. Congratulations. Jesus is actually congratulating these sheep because they're blessed. And notice that the idea of being blessed, that is a passive idea. Someone has to come and bless you if you're to be blessed. Many of us bless ourselves a lot. We talk to ourselves about how great we are and how competent we are and how spiritual we are. But this is not something anyone can do for himself or herself. It's conferred, and we know who does the blessing. Who does the blessing? Well, the Father of Jesus and our Heavenly Father does the blessing. And here's part of this blessing. It's amazing. Inherit the kingdom. Whenever this idea of inherit comes up in the New Testament, in that era, it was always attached to an official will and testament. You, to inherit something, had to have been given it by the act of someone who owed you nothing, really, and left something for you when that person decided to give up the ghost. Well, look at this. Blessed. Who blesses us? God the Father. How does He bless us? With an inheritance. And that inheritance, we're going to see later, is the inheritance of being His children. Of being chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. And look what He goes on to say in verse 34. The kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Remember what I mentioned a moment ago? That Jesus, when He comes, is going to establish His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And there's going to be responsibility that is meted out to those who are sheep. And we're going to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What a blessing. That's a commendation, isn't it? Looking forward to that time. And notice the origin in time, or eternity probably, prepared when? From the foundation of the world. Some interpreters say from the time that the world was created. I prefer to believe it happened prior to creation. In His sovereign will, God included us in His will and testament. What a blessing. It's something that He has given to us. It's nothing we can earn or deserve. It's obviously an expression of His great grace to us.
Now, look at what Jesus says for the reason as to why He commends them. Beginning in verse 35. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me. And naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. All right, let's just stop right there. The people who are sheep of Christ are people who minister to Jesus. Now look at their response, though. They're puzzled. They're scratching their heads. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we say to you, a stranger, see you as a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And then Jesus responds, This is awesome. And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. Please keep your place here and turn back to Matthew 12 for a moment. Matthew 12, verse 46. While Jesus was still speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. What we know, if we were to go to Matthew 13, that there were sisters too. Four brothers are actually named by name in Matthew 13, in the concluding paragraph of Matthew 13. And then just the plural sisters is used. So we know Jesus had at least six half-siblings, the product of the relationship between his mother Mary and his foster father, if you will, or adoptive father Joseph, six. The brothers at least were here. The sisters perhaps were not here. No mention of them. Verse 48 says, But he answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Remember what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount? When there will be people at this moment who will say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say, I never knew you. Remember those group, that group of people? They said, well, we perform miracles in your name. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. Jesus doesn't refute their claims. His silence really endorses that their claims are correct. But they did not know Him and He did not know them. Why? Because they did not do His will. What is characteristic of a sheep of Christ is that she or he is about doing the will of the Father. It's actually an inevitability that if you know Christ, you won't be perfect in this life. But because of His presence in your life and in my life, the Bible tells us that God said in the book of Ezekiel that I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to be careful 
to in effect do my will. The presence of Christ in your life as a believer will move you in the direction of feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, visiting those who are in prison. And by the way, many of these who will be there will have been here during the tribulation, that seven years. I've often wondered what will happen to us if we are alive when Jesus allows this process to be set in motion, that seven years of tribulation. I know many of you believe that the rapture of the church will occur before. I do not believe that. I think it will happen after, at the end of the seven years. I don't have time to go into that this morning, but I'm convinced of that and have been for years through a careful study of the New Testament, putting it all together. And I would have to say I hold that position humbly. Some of the greatest minds and committed believers, some in this room, have adopted that. But what we can agree upon, Jesus is coming up. But I'm thinking, what's going to happen even to the people who are saved, even if you have a pre-tribulational rapture view that the church is out of here and people are going to get saved, aren't there? 144,000 at least. We know that from the book of Revelation. How are they going to get along? Where are they going to get food? They don't have the mark of the beast, do they? So how are they going to be taken care of? Well, here's how it's going to happen. We're going to feed the hungry. There are going to be people, I don't know how this happens, but I know there are going to be people who have the means and they prepared in some way and they share what they have with us because we're family in Christ. That's why. So when Jesus talks here in this teaching, which is terrific, he teaches, when you did it unto one of the least of these, and he was very, Jesus never said anything that was incorrect or impossible to understand. These brothers of mine. And then here in Matthew 12, who are his brothers and sisters? Those who do his will. What is his will? Among other things, it's to care for one another in the body of Christ. Are we to infer from this text that we must do these things? Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, shelter those who are without shelter, visit those who are sick, visit those who are in prison. Are we to infer from this teaching that this is the pathway to salvation? Well, we could if we didn't have verse 34 before us much less the rest of the New Testament. Blessed. We can't bless ourselves, can we? We got an inheritance by the grace of God. When did we get that inheritance? By the, before the foundation or at the foundation of the world. Did we have anything to do with that? We had absolutely nothing to do with that. And if we were to go, for instance, to Titus, the second chapter, it's a great passage. We read it together about how our salvation is through grace. Grace appeared to us. Grace was personified in Jesus. Grace appeared to us. We are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. And we were saved, however, the concluding remarks of Paul to Titus in verse 14 of Titus 2 is, so that we would be zealous for good works. That's what happens when we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord. In 1983... An 11-year-old boy named 
Trevor Farrell, who lived in Philadelphia, was watching the evening news with his parents. And there was an expose on the homeless problem in the city of brotherly love. And he watched that with wonder. And he turned to his mother and father, who were believers in Jesus, and this 11-year-old knew the Lord. And he said, is this really true? They said, yes, Trevor, it's true. Would you take me downtown and let me see these people? And they looked at each other and they had no argument. They said, yes, son, we will. They got in their car and Trevor pulled a couple of blankets out of the hallway closet and took some water and food and they drove down there and they saw what they had seen on TV was accurate. And he got out of his car with permission of his parents under their watchful eye and he went to a man who was just in a crumpled heap on the sidewalk he was shivering in the cold. And he said, Sir, I would like you to have this blanket. He gave him the blanket, gave him a little food and water, and then he walked away. Word spread fast in the homeless community because night after night, Trevor's parents took him down and they joined in in ministering to the people who were homeless there in the city. And before one would know it, there was a whole vanguard, almost like an army of people who were joining Trevor. Someone gave a van for the cause. There was a place that had been rented in this broken down side of Philadelphia. And it had the name over the entrance, Trevor's Place. It was a place where people could come for shelter who had no shelter. He became a celebrity almost overnight. He was invited by Merv Griffin. Some of you remember Merv Griffin? Yeah. To be on his talk show. Pat Robertson. Many of you know Pat Robertson. He's going strong, isn't he, with the 700 Club? Pat Robertson had him on his show. President Reagan wanted to meet him. He went to the White House. And when people would ask him, what is the motivation for this? then this is what Trevor would say. It's Jesus inside of me that makes me want to do this. An 11-year-old who understands the dynamic of what the Christian life is. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory, is what Paul writes in the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Jesus Christ dwells in those who are His sheep. And His sheep hear His voice. And they follow Him. Jesus walked into that broken down section of Philadelphia in the presence of, in the person of, Trevor Farrell. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. How are we to understand this in its practicality? in addition to what has already been said. 1 John three sixteen and 17. Write that down, please. If you don't know how to get there quickly, just write it down. This is what God says through 1 John three sixteen and 17. By this we know what love is, that Jesus laid down His life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
how can you have the world's goods and see your brother in need and not respond to that person in need, but you close your heart against that person and say that the love of God dwells in you. In other words, if you and I are close-hearted, and if we go back to Deuteronomy 15, which we read, which talked about in Israel when they established their new dwelling place in the Promised Land, they would go in there and there would be no poor person. This was God's intention. No poor man in all of Israel. Why? Because they would not be tight-fisted. Don't close your hand. How often have we closed our hands against our brothers and sisters? Well, they made their bed let them lie in it. Get a job. Well, we do know the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. We also know this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. I like this. If you have in your former life been a thief, get a job. Work with your hands and take the money you make doing the job and don't just spend it on you. Look for someone else who's in need. Get the picture? Why did Jesus repeat what Deuteronomy 15 says in a little different version? But He said, the poor you will always have with you. Is it beyond the capacity of Jesus Christ to wipe out poverty in the world? No. Why do you suppose Jesus has allowed poor people, needy people to remain? So that we can minister to Him. That's why our brothers and sisters in Christ. What about non-Christians? Have you been thinking about that as I've been talking? If Jesus says, when you've done this to one of the least of these brothers of mine, are we just to exclusively look to the brothers in Christ? Hey, look, we got people in our church who are hurting financially. You may not think about it, but they are here. If you will get to know people a little bit more, you will know things about them. And you will want to help them. Well, here's what the Scripture says about People who don't know the Lord. And our responsibility. The Bible says in Galatians 6.10, key verse, Galatians 6.10, the Bible says, as long as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those who are members of the household of the faith, speaking of the Christian faith. That's our first priority. We take care of our scriptural family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we'll have something left over that we can use to minister to people who are not in the family of God yet. Haley Mills, some of us are old enough to have at one time been fans of Haley Mills. In 1961... We know the film Pollyanna and The Parent Trap. Those are famous films that she starred in. But in 1961, a more obscure movie entitled Whistle Down the Wind featured her. She starred in it. And the storyline, she and two of her friends are out in the countryside enjoying the day. And they seek shelter in a barn, hay barn, when it begins to rain. And they went in there and... To their surprise, and also to the surprise of the person whom they found there, 
there was this vagrant. He was asleep, but he started when he heard them up come in. He jumped up and they said, who are you? They were startled too. And he said, Jesus Christ. And he didn't. He said it is a curse word, obviously. And they took him at his word. They thought, this is Jesus, they said. Do you know what those little girls did? So the story goes. They brought him blankets. They brought him food. They sat down and wanted to hear from him. This is the storyline. And what happened is, this man who was recently released from prison had never had anyone to show any interest in him before. was radically changed because these children ministered to him. Whistled down the wind. It's amazing what God does to change people. Consider Pascal, a native citizen of Madagascar. He was a professor in a local university. There was a Marxist coup. And because he leaned in the direction of conservatism, he was placed in prison. He was not a leftist. He spent time there. While he was there, he came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. After being released, he could not get a job as a professor anymore because of the left-leaning of the government, which controlled the universities there in Madagascar. He started an import-export business. But he could not get that prison off of his mind. And so he got permission to go and visit inmates and share the gospel with them. His first visit, when he entered the prison, he noticed in a covered porch, screened in, several corpses, by his account, probably at least 50 stacked in that area. Naked corpses. He turned to the man who was ushering him in. He says, what kind of disease that these men die of? And the man said, malnutrition. He went home and he spoke to his wife. He said, told her what had happened. He said, we can't do a lot, but we can do something. This believer in Jesus began with his wife, every day after their long day in their business ended, they cooked food for 70 men every day and took it to the prison and preached the gospel there. And people were saved and changed. Do you know why I believe the Lord? This is not specifically said in this passage. I'm going to put a couple of verses together to help us see why the Lord would not say, you preach the gospel in my name in this point. That's what I would expect. And there is some evidence that we will give an account of our stewardship of the gospel of Jesus. Make no mistake about it. But remember what Jesus says in John 17, 20 and 21. He's speaking to His apostles, to God rather, about His apostles. And He says, Father, I pray that they may be one And all those who hear the Word of God through them. And today, we're hearing the Word of God through those apostles. Because this is the apostles teaching the New Testament that we're looking at primarily today. He says, and all those whom, Lord, may they be one. That's talking about us. That's talking about this body of believers. We are the body of Christ and the heart of Jesus if we be one. You know why? So that the world will know that you sent me. Do you know... That Jesus, being recognized as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lord of the universe, 
that depends on our being one. If we were to go to Acts chapter 4, this is a phenomenal passage. I'm paraphrasing now in the interest of time. But in that section of Scripture, the Bible talks about the people acted as one. So that nobody claimed anything as his or her own for final distribution. And so they shared with one another. And this isn't socialism. This is Christianity, okay? Socialism is a cul-de-sac. But the Christian faith is anything but that. But what we know is, is that the result of this, listen carefully, says, as a result of their being one, because of their sharing of their wealth with each other, if you want to call it wealth, the result was that the apostles preached the resurrection of Jesus with greater power. What's the connection? Why were people coming to Christ? Well, the power is in the Gospel for sure. But they saw a living demonstration of this right before their eyes. Something, remember these were Jewish people primarily. This was something they had never seen before. If they had been obedient to Deuteronomy 15, they would have seen it all the time. Because that was God's will. That people would share what they were given with people who are in difficult times. Here's a question. Why these six mercy ministries? Why will Jesus, when He comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords, why will He look for evidence of that in our lives? Why these six mercy ministries? There are no miracle ministries here, are there? None at all. I'll tell you why I believe these are simple things. Anybody can feed somebody, right? Anybody can help someone get some clothes, right? Anybody can do this. You don't have to be some kind of spiritual superstar to do any of these six things. You just have to be willing to let the compassion of Christ minister through you. I think of an event in Jesus' life recorded in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 42. The Scripture talks about a leper who came to Jesus and he bowed down before him and he begged him, and this is what he begged of the Lord. He said, Lord, cleanse me. He said, Lord, cleanse me. And you know what Jesus said? You are cleansed. Go. And he was never sick of leprosy again. And Jesus touched him. The Scripture says, full of compassion, Jesus touched him. Wow. That rendered Jesus impure in the eyes of the religious establishment of his day. So, why these ordinary, simple kinds of things? Because God delights in seeing people's needs met. Every person is important to God. And to Jesus, of course, who is the God-man. And consequently, what the Lord would have us to be is this kind of person. Did you notice that these people were caught off guard when Jesus said, you did these things to me? When? They had no clue. They weren't self-conscious. 
ministry that's done in dependence upon the Holy Spirit is conscious of Him, Jesus, not conscious of ourselves. You and I can get over our self-consciousness by dying to ourselves, letting Christ rule in our lives, and let Him minister through us. Being willing to step out in obedience and faith to the Lord. What about the non-believers? Well, the non-believers, we are told, even our enemies. What are we to do to our enemies? Romans chapter 12. We love Romans, don't we? Romans chapter 12, what does it say? If your enemy is hungry, give him a good slap in the face. It's not what it says. What does it say? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And it goes on to say, in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. It's like kill him with kindness. That's what it kind of sounds like, right? But a careful study of the practices in the Middle East in this time frame was that fire was incredibly important. And in the morning, the person who's responsible for getting the meal going, getting the house warmed up, would go wherever the fire was. It was probably like a facsimile of a stove there and would fool around in the coals, stir them up, see if there was any fire there and put some kindling on it and it would come into flame. Sometimes the fire was completely gone. So what that person would do. There was an urn that would be there. Take this urn, take it to a nearby neighbor, explain the dilemma, and say, may I borrow a couple of your coals? Do you have any live coals? Yes. And then that person would put the coals in the urn, and the person would carry the urn back and then have fire for warmth and food. So in contrary to killing people with kindness, the idea is what? That we're going to be, we're going to be kind not killing them with it. We're just going to be kind because we're ministering to them. Let's look at the last part of this passage. It's condemnation. Verse 41, Then he will also say to them on his left, Depart from me. That's, that's what he says. Cursed ones, into the eternal fire that would be hell. Lake of fire, which has been prepared for the devil, Satan, obviously, and his angels, the third of the angels who followed Satan in rebellion that we're told about in the gospel and also in Isaiah and Ezekiel. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in naked. You did not clothe me sick and in prison. You did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you, hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And then this most sobering statement, and these will go away into eternal punishment. Unbreakable is the idea. It will be punishment forever. Think of some of the Words which are associated or the word pictures which are associated with eternal punishment. Outer darkness, weeping, wailing, grinding of teeth, fire, worms which never die. That's gruesome, isn't it? That's awful. 
And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul describes it as everlasting destruction. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? You can't put everlasting and destruction together. If something's destroyed, it's gone. But that's what hell is, go- is like. It's what it's going to be like. We learn the doctrine of eternal punishment from Jesus. Was Jesus merciful? Better ask, is He merciful? Yes, He is. But He's also a holy God. He has to uphold the holiness of God. The wages of sin is death. Sin exacts a wage. Jesus paid for it. He offers it to us today. Some of you may be here and you're not sure if you're ready for the coming of Christ. There's a quick remedy for that. And that is to deny yourself, give control of your life to Christ, ask Him to be your Lord, and quit running your own life. Give Him control of your life. That's the answer to that question. But the righteous into eternal life, that's a sweet-sounding statement. The sheep will go into eternal life. Mother Teresa was asked what the members of her order did. And she said, we contemplate Christ. And then she went on to say this, we meditate on Jesus and then we go out to look for Him in disguise. That was her expression of her understanding of the importance after having met with Christ to do the will of Christ by ministering to other people. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You for the Gospel. We thank You that we are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It's Your gift to us. But You did create us in Christ Jesus to do good deeds. Help us to be zealous for these mercy ministries, but so many others, Lord. This is not an exhaustive list. Thank You, Lord. We trust You, Lord, to work in the hearts of people who may be in this room who do not know You. We ask, Lord, that they would transition from being estranged from You to being in You. That You would not let this get away from them today. They would trust in You, Lord, so they can be men and women fulfilling the purpose of God the Father for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.